He pushed his trolley around and stared at the barrier. It looked very... solid. He started to walk toward it. People jostled him on their way to platforms 9 and 10. Harry walked more quickly. He was going to smash right into that barrier and then he'd be in trouble. Leaning forward on his cart, he broke into a heavy run. The barrier was coming nearer and nearer. He wouldn't be able to stop. The cart was out of control. He was a foot away. He closed his eyes and readied for the crash. It didn't come. He kept on running. He opened his eyes. A scarlet steam engine was waiting next to the platform, packed with people. A sign overhead said Hogwarts Express, 11 o'clock. Harry looked behind him and saw a wrought iron archway where the barrier had been, with the words, Platform 9 and 3 quarters on it. He had done it. What's up, potheads? Welcome to the restricted section, in which a bunch of nerds with potty mouths reread the Harry Potter series for the umpteenth time and discuss how the story and its themes have stayed with a generation into adulthood. Thank you for listening. If you haven't done the reading, don't worry, we did it for you. Here's what we are talking about today. The time has finally come for the journey from Platform 9 and 3 quarters. Harry is dropped by the Dursleys in King's Cross Station for what seems to be the worst practical joke of all time. Searching frantically between platforms 9 and 10, Harry is at a loss for how to finally meet his fate and enter the wizarding world. Fortunately, Harry runs into the world's most lovable clan of redheads, and the Weasleys help Harry clear the barrier, load his trunk, and make his first friend. We're off through the English countryside on a scarlet train engine full of strange candies and even stranger students. Finally, hustled along through the night, Harry gets his first glimpse of Hogwarts. As his boat docks inside the steep cliff under the castle, Harry feels the mounting pressure of his fame and expectations for the school year ahead. Well, we're here. Yep. What's up, everybody? How's it going? Oh, did we start? <laughs> yeah, we're starting now. <laughs> Yay! I'm not feeling sick, so <coughs> 10 out of 10. <coughs> yeah, listeners, you can rest assured that all of us have washed our hands for at least 20 seconds before the start of this recording. My house is now uh, washed before entry. And house. then um, I immediately touched my face five gazillion times afterwards. I hope someone listens to this podcast <laughs> like two years from now and they're like, why are they so obsessed with washing hands? Yeah, the 60 people left in America in three years <laughs> will be really confused about what this was. My company actually put out a memo in which they said that because we're in the travel industry and at increased risk of catching the coronavirus, we should abstain from kissing, hugging, and other intimate activities with our partners who may be compromised at home. Which is good, because we've been saying ourselves for Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, that's canon. You mentioned that in the yeah, previous I've episode. Never, I've never even held this woman's hand. So. He's never held any woman's yeah. hand. It's always full of spinach. <laughs> Hell yeah, it is. His hand, not the woman's hand. <laughs> Everyone's that's hands full of spinach, which is fine because we've all washed our hands for 20 seconds. That's a good band name. Hands full of spinach. <laughs> Dibs. Like, we're all vegans, but we still love metal uh, music. 
You know what's uh, also a good band name? Platform Nine and Three Quarter. Thank you so much. That, and that's what I call a great segue right there. So um, we're doing Platform Nine and Three Quarter today, which is by far the longest chapter name we've had so far. Um, but before that, let's do a roll call. And as we go around the circle today, I want you guys to tell me where the fuck do you think Trevor the Frog was hiding on that fucking train? I'm your host, Christina, and I think Trevor was hiding under the seat directly under Neville the entire time. I'm Grace, and I think Trevor was hiding in the trolley cart. I'm Haley. Uh, I would like to point out first that Trevor is a toad and not a frog. <gasps> oh my god, I am um, so sorry. That, yeah, was really, should that was really disrespectful. You should be sorry. <laughs> I know, I'm so sorry. Oh and I god. think that he's been in, Trevor, uh, in Neville's pocket the entire time. I'm Mary Clay, and I think he was just trying to get as far away from Neville as possible. <laughs> I'm Mike, and I gotta agree with Haley on this one. Uh, it's gotta be in Neville's pocket. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's so stupid. I'm Brooke, and I think that Trevor was probably tucked into a suitcase. Mm-hmm. Or a trunk. Like a Sorry. snuggly ass. We don't use normal freaking zippers, because apparently zippers are not magical. Um, and wheels. Or wheels. As I've stated before, the wizarding community is thoroughly stuck in 1892, so that that tracks. Also, I'm Andrew, and I, in a similar vein, I think that Trevor was, most of the time, these robes are depicted as having hoods on the back, and I think that Trevor was actually in the hood part of Neville's uh, robe once he put it on. Classic. My name is Mary Payton. <laughs> Not to be confused. Not to be confused. And I think that Trevor was probably up Malfoy's butt. <laughs> so, so, like, half this group thinks that Neville is even more of an idiot than this yeah. chapter portrays him to be. Everyone so except for me. Poor Neville. Poor Neville. At age 11, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, he has a lot of growth yet to come. So, Brooke, do you want to tell us what we're drinking today? We are drinking Wild Gingers in on, honor of the Weasley family. Wild Ginger is blended scotch, lemon juice, honey allspice syrup, or allspice dram, but I figured it had enough alcohol, and we had talked about not getting too drunk, and uh, cherry cordial. And for someone who doesn't really drink alcohol, it's a bomb-ass drink, if Thank I you. may they're say They're real so. tasty. Yeah, they're fucking delicious. Could not recommend it more. Speaking of, I also made a non-alcoholic variant, which is a cherry tea with the honey allspice syrup and lemon. Mm. And it's delicious. We could probably stand to announce our non-alcoholic variants more frequently. When they're there. When they're there. For the children. For the children. <laughs> <laughs> who hopefully are not listening to yes, I, I cannot... Emphasize this anymore. Do not let your children fucking listen to us. Unless you <laughs> want your child misery. asking you why Dumbledore is a bottom and what is a bottom, don't let your children listen <laughs> to us. Unless you want your kids to be fucking rad, don't listen to them. <laughs> don't let them listen to us. Um, how could you ever let your fit up Malfoy's butthole? I don't understand. I don't know if you guys have noticed, listeners, um, all nine of you who have given us five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. Previous episodes, we have gone a little crazy with the timeline. Um, This episode, we're going to go really chronologically because we meet a lot of really cool characters, and I want to make sure they all get their due. So, um, speaking of cool characters, let's start with the Dursleys, am I right? Yeah! Yeah. Dursleys! (laughs) Yeah, this episode starts with Harry's... Well, this chapter... Okay, from now on... The words episode and chapter are synonymous, and yes. you can't, you can't, you can't get on me for saying it wrong. I, I agree. That being said, last episode I did say episode when I meant to say podcast. And that was a genuine error. <laughs> so we start with the really inspiring line: "Harry's last month with the Dursleys wasn't fun." So, anyone have any thoughts? Well, it was really creative, J.K., to step out of her comfort zone and really uh, 
spin the whole tale with the Dursleys in a different direction. It was not fun. Surprise. I did not see that coming. <laughs> After they had just been chased around England to a remote shack on an island in the middle of the sea and had a giant come and steal away their unwanted <laughs> child, it wasn't fun. Who would have thought? Um, also, as we mentioned, he stole their exit off of the island. So I would really... Still wondering. How did they get... I got. I just gotta believe that it was Petunia's powerful legs propelling... Because <laughs> she's tall. Propelling the buoyant Vernon and Dudley hanging on for dear life. I, I, I kind of see Petunia as like a like a varsity swimmer in high school. I think like so, just too. Trying to trying to do something to distinguish herself from Lily. I, I think you're onto something. Actually, here. this this uh, this issue was actually answered in a uh, companion piece uh, done later on called Swiss Army Man. Um, <laughs> no, Harry, no, Harry, no, Harry, Harry oh, parks his way off the island and saves them. I, I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty good like subplot to the whole Harry Potter series, and it shows I think it shows Harry's growth and compassion because now he's a wizard with amazing magical powers. But he still comes back to the Dursleys and uses his magical parts to power them off the island and go on a crazy, fun-filled adventure. I do like that theory that Harry becomes a Swiss Army man, and I would like to explore that further in a different episode. <laughs> I, I have to say I was really disappointed with us because none of us raised the idea last time that Hagrid might have simply gotten a second boat. Like a second rowboat. He said he flew there. But he it, doesn't, flew. it doesn't necessarily mean he flew directly to that. Guys, island. nope, I'm calling it. We're not doing this again. <laughs> they got off the fucking island. Let's move on. <laughs> this is the first chapter in which we see Harry being a whiny little bitch in that he's been uh, upset at the Dursleys for his entire life. And then they finally just like leave him alone to hang out in the room because he now has a room. And he's like, I mean, it's fine, but it does get a little depressing just because no one's tormenting me anymore. I think that the word depressing, like, for Harry to use the word depressing, like, it must have been real bad because, like, you know, it's all, like, your whole fucking life has been a nightmare. I really get the impression from this chapter, like, that Harry's relationship with the Dursleys is kind of like, like, if you have co-workers that you don't really get along with, like... Yeah, you don't like them, but you're stuck with them, and they might be mean to you, and you might occasionally be mean back, especially if they're, like, a higher up, but, like, you do what you can to keep the peace. Which one of your coworkers currently sitting at this table are you talking about exactly? Christina, but... <laughs> I'm glad you asked. I come in every day... Right off the bat, apologizing for how annoying I'm about to be. Okay, <laughs> confirm she does that. I, I think. I think once again, we gotta look at it, and really, it's the Dursleys here who are actually the character showing growth. Harry showed no personal growth here, but the Dursleys are like, wait a second, this wizarding kid can shoot laser beams, and he can use his magical fart powers to get us off of an island. Like, we should probably not piss him off, and we should give. They gave him a bedroom. And I'm just saying that's a that's a huge amount of character growth in such a short period. So I mean, really, the real heroes so far in this book are the Dursleys. In a, okay, so he says that he pulls Hedwig's name from a history of magic. Do we know what item, person, event in a history of magic is that name? I looked this up. Oh my god! Yeah. Incredible. I know. It's really good. Um, saint Hedwig is famed for being the patron the patron saint of orphans. <gasps> Oh no. my god! Oh. Ravenclaw! Oh, no. Did the research. Oh, what? I'm crying. Isn't that kind so of sad? Painful. That's beautiful. Yeah. Wow. 
Wow. So, wait. Okay. So, here's the thing. Patron saint. That's yeah. Christianity. Right. So, do, do you think she was a witch? To be in his books? So, actually, this is later on in the chapter, but when they're talking about the list of the chocolate frog cards, a lot of the people that are cited as being famous witches and oh, wizards yeah. throughout the ages are either going to be big mathematicians, physicists, astronomers, or saints. Yeah, Agrippa you're, you're right. and Ptolemy are name-dropped. Yeah, totally. I, I noticed that as well, and I was also thinking, we're not going to jump ahead, but he needs a fuck ton of chocolate frogs. Uh, also, a lot of saints um, are kind of appropriated from like ancient pagan gods. Like, just as an example, like Saint Bridget is appropriated from the triple goddess Brigid. Like, it's there are very clear parallels, and like the magical communities, like I don't know, connection to all of that. Like, it's never been fully explored in the books, but it's definitely implied. Cool. So there's no good way to just be like, great way to end that subject, but cool. So so we move on to Harry trying to get himself to London, which is apparently a two and a half hour drive away. Also, I, I've always loved this line where uh, Harry asks, why are you going to London? Taking Dudley to the hospital ground, Uncle Vern. Got to have that ruddy tail removed before he goes to smeltings. I would just love to see Dudley have to deal with having a tail. Just show up at school, hide the tail. Maybe he gets excited, starts wiggling in behind him. Be fantastic. Also, just the fact that the Dursleys sat around for two months with, uh, or right now one month, with Dudley having a tail before they decided, think, hey, maybe we should do something about that. I think you gotta like book an appointment with a specialist for that. <laughs> this actually completely flipped me that this is like, just like wanton child abuse on the part of Hagrid because the fact that the tail didn't get removed, he didn't just magic it away. They had to go to like a plastic surgeon and be like, yeah, he's had this his whole life. We're only now concerned about it. Because you can't be like magic. Well, and don't forget that Hagrid's original plan was to turn him into a pig. Was he just going to leave a little piglet with the Dursleys and say, there's your favorite child. Bye. I feel like at one point or another, either McGonagall or Dumbledore would have been like, you did what now? Magic's, Dursley, Magic's Dudley back to normal and then like wipes their memory so they don't remember that happening and then like goes back to Hogwarts and it's like, Hagrid, how many times do I have to tell you? Don't turn fat children into pigs. <laughs> Absolutely not, though, because somehow he got away with, like, sprouting a pigtail and they don't do shit about it. I can only assume they don't know, because I would assume that they would have a, a response force to this. Hmm. I think, I think we're, we're not giving enough credit here. I can see the joke in your eyebrows no, no, right no, now. No, no, <laughs> no, I have learned that. We're not, we're not giving enough credit here to the, to the muggles. Like, literally, we can build people penises. Why can't we remove a pigtail? Who's to say that they are so anti-magic that they're just like, we're just going to go to a hospital and just be like, hey, our son, freak mutant, cut off this tail, right? Like, I'm dead serious. Like, who's to say the Dursleys are so, like, like think about it. If this happened, do you think if someone showed up and they said, we can help your son, do you think they would be like, yeah, sure, totes? Or do you think they'd say, fuck you, we're going to the hospital because we have universal health care. That also leads me to the question of, like, if someone tried to come help them off the island and they were like, no, no, don't touch us, fuck off. <laughs> I'm just saying this did actually happen in book four when the twins accidentally on purpose gave Dudley the thing that makes his tongue like grow giant and like Mr. Weasley was trying to reverse it and they wouldn't let him reverse it because they were like no magic bad. That is one scene that I truly lament the loss of in the films because that would have been beautiful. 
So he gets to fucking King's Cross Station and the Dursleys are all laughing at him. That's a nightmare, right? Everyone who has ever, I mean, everyone who's ever cared for you leaving and laughing. Well, and once again, Harry's not, I don't think, totally sold on the fact that all of this wasn't a horrific fever dream. Like, he shows up and he's had the very simple instructions of, hey, just like, you know, follow this ticket, find the platform, get on the train. And he shows up and it doesn't exist. That's got to be soul crushing. And uh, that's a huge oversight on Hagrid's part to not explain that to him. And that's something that definitely is included in the muggle onboarding we discussed last episode. Also, Harry's fucking dumb. He asks guards and uh, people who are working there if they've heard of Hogwarts. It's like you're you're talking to muggles about the wizarding school. I mean, obviously, he didn't say Hogwarts school of witchcraft and wizardry, but like. Might as well just, like, blow the whole thing, Harry. So, I, I gotta I gotta disagree with you. Uh, Harry is a 10-year-old. Uh, 11. He's a uh, okay, he's a 11-year-old <laughs> who literally only a few months ago was exposed to a huge, huge universal, like, collision that magic exists. And he doesn't know where it ends, where it stops, who is a magician, who isn't. So I don't blame him for doing that. But the one thing I do love about this chapter, and I still remember it very vividly, and even rereading it again... Is this is where J.K. Rowling like this is how this is where she is an amazing writer because I got so nervous rereading it again and freaking out and being like, will Harry get on this? And I remember being a kid and reading this and literally getting up and walking around my room pacing because I was so nervous and I remember yelling, "He's got to get on the fucking train! He's got to get on the fucking train!" And you said that exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> but I just remember literally having a temper tantrum with myself because of just how tense I was and. That's where she's an amazing writer. And that's a particular pain point for Michael because he is late to everything. Aw. Everything. Just take the Fort Anglia. You'll be fine. I feel like this might be another incident, uh, instance of Hagrid thinking that the Dursleys are going to fucking tell Harry something, what, like thinking they've learned their lesson. Because like Petunia had to have gone with Lily at least a couple of times to get on the train. So Good like point. Petunia's got to know about the fucking barrier and she's just like withholding that information to be the worst. And like laughing about it. Yeah. If you've ever been in a train station, a bus station, uh, an airport, and there's 10 minutes until your thing, and you don't know where, there is no greater panic. And I can't tell you how many times that has happened to me where I'm like, we have 10 minutes until this bus to Germany leaves, and we have zero idea where the bus is. We will die here. (laughs) That exact situation is both the fastest I have ever run in my life, and the reason I always travel with a single backpack. Mm. Because you can fucking bolt. And you know what? I'm going to hold on to Sean's backpack, and when he gets faster than me, he will tug me along. (laughs) But it's only through that horrible panic that we meet the single greatest saint in a all of the Harry Potter books. Of course, I'm talking about Mrs. Weasley. Molly, not my daughter, you bitch, Weasley. <laughs> um, we get the intro to her, though, with her asking, what's the platform number? I don't even want to talk about how dumb she acts in this chapter. So many children I already hear. I actually do have a thought about that, because I was thinking the same thing when I read this, and I, f- I feel like that's a thing where you have to adjust the tone in your head, to make it work because 
Like, that's such a mom move. Like, now what's the platform, children? That- the only alternative is that tr- uh, wizards have other trains at other, like, fraction platforms. So, like, nine and a half, that's going to take you to the wrong place. No, I, 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 I gotta disagree. I think it is a mom move, but I think it is something where it's a mom move where she's so frazzled because she has all these kids and all these luggage. She can barely get her kids' names straight. Like, my mom does it even now. She sometimes calls us by the dog's name. I'm like, that's cool. Uh, I love you too. Shout out to my mom. Um, but, you know, so, like, I don't blame her for being, like, frazzled and not knowing the damn thing. In case you're wondering if it's, like, an easy mix-up because the dog's name Carl, it's Polly and Buddy, so it's certainly not. <laughs> I really need to say here, I, Molly Weasley was always one of my favorite characters. I... Don't get the wrong idea. I love my mother. She's an amazing mother. But there's something so warm about Molly Weasley. Just so perfect and amazing and just nothing but care. And you just get that impression she's that mother that even though they're not in the best situation financially, they don't have all the resources that they want, she makes shit happen. Her kids do not feel bad. They do not feel left out. They get what they need. Sure, Ron feels a little self-conscious, but that's probably because he's the sixth brother. She is... I've just always loved this character. I think she is one of the greatest mothers ever portrayed in in literature. Yeah, I agree. She is just constantly in mom mode. Even throughout the books when Harry is over, he's... She seems to sense what he needs, which is a sense of family. And no matter what they're doing, whether they're cleaning out an entire house, she includes him in the way that she includes everyone else. She feeds him well, she cares for him, loves him, and, you know, makes him be a part of the family. And I think that's what he needs, and she can tell. This is much later on in the books, but I also love that J.K. kind of brought it full circle with her, too. And, yes, she is a stay-at-home mom, but you can definitely tell that she's one of those people that she just always wanted to be a mom because she does take on Harry. She does have all these maternal instincts. And, of course, like you said, Christina, not my daughter, you bitch. This is a woman who is incredibly skilled and incredibly powerful. And I just love the fact that she doesn't feel like she's wasting her talent. She's doing what she wants to do, which is taking care of kids. I think um, the thing with Molly is that she also has kind of an edge to her because this is never explicitly stated in the books, but Molly's maiden name is Pruitt. And her brothers were Fabian, and I can't remember the other one, and but they both died fighting Death Eaters. Like, she was part of the war. So, like, that not-my-daughter-you-bitch, like, that that's always been in there. Like, Molly's always low-key been a warrior, and, like, that's what I love about her so much. Like, she reminds me a lot of my mom. Like, so every time I read her, I'm just like, <laughs> Shortly after we meet, just like the Weasleys at large, we, we get our first taste of Fred and George, which is... I, I, I just, I, right away, I remembered how hilarious they are. The, like, right off the bat, I'm like, oh my god, you guys are my favorite characters. I completely forgot about you. You call yourself our mother. That's <laughs> just so fucking funny. And you know, it's like, they know she's frazzled. They know she's having a hard day. And they're still laying it on. Always in good spirits. They're like, oh, just kidding. We got you, ma'am. <laughs> I also just love how, for the majority of this chapter, and I'm sure it'll be true for the rest of the book, too, the movie pulled, like, almost exclusively from the dialogue in the book and, like, pretty much kept it the same. And I I just appreciate that so much because as I was reading it, I was, like, reading it in their voices as they do with, like, their inflections that they do on the platform in the movie. And it's so, it's so good and so and fun. They nail it so much. The The Phelps brothers, right? Yeah. They, they really nail it. Uh, and I love how, not to skip over how funny they are, but 
how also how kind they are. They're the older brothers who really could be big bullies. And they pick on their brothers, of course, um, and even little sister. But they, they're so kind and helpful. Like, in this chapter alone, when they first meet Harry, all they do is help him with his trunk. Um, and everything they do is all in good fun. Yeah, and I think that's another reason that we cheer for them so much in book five. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. One of my favorite scenes ever, which we'll get to. Oh, um, yeah. I'm looking <laughs> forward to that um, they're just now. Like, they're, they're so funny, but they do it in such a good way. Going back to, like, how much I love this chapter, and really, once again, showing J.K. Rowling being an amazing, amazing writer. So this scene would really suck if you did not have the Dursleys. And so follow me on this one. The, in a lot of ways, this they are the opposite of the Dursleys, right? And we have Ron, who is the runt of the litter, and he feels this overwhelming burden from his older brothers and his siblings, right? And in a lot of ways, that's a juxtaposition to Harry. But his parents still love him. He's still growing up with love and caring, and he doesn't know what's going on. And I think that's why Harry and him connect, because Harry's like, dude, every second is like a, like a new experience to me. And so he's connected to that. And I think that's really how... J.K. Rowling has set up the previous chapters and set up that kind of like mental abuse from the Dursleys so that when we finally are exposed to the Weasleys, it is a much more emotionally rewarding and we connect with them just as Harry connects because finally we have this perfect family that we have not seen at all throughout the story. That children is called juxtaposition. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say she juxtaposes those two so well. Do you have an English degree? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Um, no, I just copied you. Really. Uh, <laughs> no, but the, she shows the difference in perspective on the ideas of family because in the train when Ron is so disappointed that he just has sandwiches again, like his life is hard. It's just a very different kind of heart than Harry's. And Harry is happy to have like a homemade sandwich, I feel like. They don't say that in the book, but that's the impression that I get. That this is a sandwich that was made by a loving mother and he gets to have that. He, like His friend can have all the candy he wants. Yeah, totally. I, I've always been a huge fan of uh, Rowling's dialogue. I, I think that's what made me a lover of dialogue and probably got me into Kevin Smith eventually because of that. But <laughs> I do think that the vision that she lays with describing Harry going through the platform is in my, was always one of the most vivid scenes in my mind, and they got it perfect in the movie. So as Brooke said in the intro, it, the the description that she gives, I see the, 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 the train and I see the, the smoke and the owls and the absolute commotion with cats and kids. And it just, it was such a vivid image in my mind when I was reading it every time I read it, every time. I love the continuity also in this chapter. Like at one point while Harry is like walking through the platform, like you see Lee Jordan for the first time. who's like low key, one of my favorite totally. characters. And he's got a box with like something that sticks out a long hairy leg. And then like later on, uh, Fred and George run into the uh, compartment that Harry's sharing with Ron. And they're like, we got a bolt because uh, Lee's got a giant tarantula and we need to see this shit. <laughs> like, I love that character so much for all the sass he gives during the quiz game. So I'm excited to get to that. Also, this is where we meet a future very brave hero boy, Neville Longbottom. We truly meet him later, but we do get a glimpse of him. Um, so. We do, however, next, I think, meet Percy in terms of the Weasleys. We don't meet him uh, prior to Barrier because he's already gone through. But God, he's fucking twat. I hate so him. his ch chest puffed out. Yeah, just a little, like, shut just up. A little fucking pee. 
Little Paper Percy. letter bullshit. Uh, I'm just going to fucking say, um, in the Weasley family, it is stated in book five that whenever one of the kids, like, makes some great accomplishment, they get one nice thing. Uh, like, Ron gets his nice broom. Percy got an owl and new robes. Like, fuck Percy. <laughs> yeah, fuck. Let's just preemptively, like, five books early say, fuck Percy, yeah, dude. fuck Percy. Fuck that Ready? guy. Ready? All together now. One, two, three. Fuck, fuck Percy. Percy. I do like how... When she's having him speak, he it's oh shut up said Percy the prefect. <laughs> <laughs> some some classic narrator sass. Wait, okay. In the this is the conversation that Harry's listening to through the window, right? Okay, the the, the toilet seat. <laughs> <laughs> I love these guys so much. They're like listening to a toilet seat, and you know, for a split second, Ginny's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, so when we first see Percy when he's coming to meet them, it goes into. A, an exchange of dialogue with the twins that I really love where they're totally ragging on him and making fun of him. And cause they're, it says, hang on. Cause he's talking about being a prefect. Hang on. I think I remember him saying something about that. Said the other twin once or twice a minute all summer. Oh, shut up. Said Percy, the prefect. And that's another one that's it's, verbatim in the movies. It's so, so fun. It's just so, so good. good. Like you, she really conveys the entire family dynamics in the sh- briefest of dialogue exchanges. You like you get the you get the whole family, and then even later when Ron talks about Charlie and Bill, you you kind of get them too. You know, I love the little detail also that like even here you kind of get a glimpse of the dynamic between the twins and Ginny specifically, which I've always really liked because Ginny is the only member of the family that they're not actively mean to. Like, Ron, they kind of mess around with. Ginny, they're always, like, very supportive and protective, and I just really like that. We'll send you a toilet. Yeah. <laughs> I would love someone to send me a Hogwarts toilet seat. So something I want to bring up to the whole group is, is and this is important because you start you start getting introduced to Ginny, and if you look at her, if you read her dialogue and everything, I don't think when J.K. Rowling was writing this that she ever thought that Ginny would be Harry's love interest. I, I don't think she had planned that out. Because the dialogue just doesn't, she just, she seems more of just like everybody else, like just the character that's just there to be Googling and she's like, whoa, it's Harry Potter, here's a scar. And I like, I really believe that probably it's not to like, what, the fourth or fifth book that she's like, oh no, this is going to be Harry's love interest. Did you mean ogling? You no, said what? Googling. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> hey. Potato, potato. Hashtag being sponsored by Google. <laughs> well, Mike, going on what you said, it's funny you said it. My dad actually called that Harry and Ginny would end up together in the second book because he called it the Top Gun scenario. Ooh. Harry can't end up with Hermione because the best friend has to end up with the obvious girl. So the best friend ends up with Hermione. Harry has no one left that's a main character at that point except Ginny. And Ron dies. It all makes sense. That's exactly. the Top Gun scenario, right? That's the book we read, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I, Top Gun, right? Yeah. I would consider Ginny to be a secondary character. How dare you? <laughs> no, no, I agree. Thank How dare you. all well, of That was like Marvin. You guys should get married or something. I, I agree that I think she could have known at this point. I think she just did it right, where you shouldn't have any sexual tension. <laughs> exactly. Between a 10-year-old and an 11-year-old. You're right, you're right. I don't know. So at 10 and 11, you don't have love at first sight. Also, George and the other fucking one. Fred? Fred. How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? You're booting off. I'm going to assume you're still Get out of here. Negative 10 points from... What house are you? Respect for the dead. So George and Fred are also the first people to recognize Harry as Harry Potter. 
Um, when they're loading his trunk, they see his scar, correct? Mm-hmm. And they are like, oh, are you, like, the Harry Potter? And then they tell their mom, and her response is just so sweet, where she's like, oh, poor dear, like, no wonder he was alone. The first thing she brings up is how polite he is, which is just, uh, it, it made me, like, warm and sad at the same time. It's like, he's he's gonna be okay now. Like, yeah. he's got people. I just love that the Weasleys' responses to finding out that it's Harry Potter. First, the twins are like, oh, that's wild. Anyway, we got to go back to our mom. See you soon. (laughs) And then, yeah, and then Molly's response is, oh, poor dear. And then Ron is like, so you're Harry Potter? Okay, cool. Uh, Yeah, I have like five billion brothers and I hate all of them. We're all special in our own way. (laughs) I think it shows their... That they're not people who seek friendship with a celebrity just for the celebrity. He's met a lot of people already who may have not tried to latch on to him, but have definitely tried to touch him or introduce themselves to him just because he's a, le- a celebrity. And they all have a different reaction than that. I love that when he's in the robe shop and Draco is there, I love how Draco doesn't realize it's him. So now when he does find out that it's Harry in this chapter... You're in public and you're like, is that Paul Rudd across the- <laughs> like in this restaurant? No, that's not Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd. And then you go home and you see him posting on his Instagram like Olive Garden was great tonight. And he tags his location. And you're like, shit, that was Paul Rudd. I'm awful. That sounds so specific. That's kind Did of that happen? Do you have regrets, Mary? I, feel, I found Paul Rudd in Olive Garden. <laughs> so I'm going to call break on this. And then uh, we'll say y'all. Uh, nope, that's wrong. <laughs> We're, we're going to just get the fuck going on this uh, Hogwarts Express. So, um, who, need, who needs to piss? Piss? Me. Anyone? Me. Piss? Piss. Ready? Okay. Harry, Harry, go into Hogwarts. Hogwarts. Gotta get some, get some, get some education. Yay. You guys are not going to like that on the replay. Burr. It's cold in Scotland. Okay. Wow. There must be dementors in the atmosphere. That was nice. That was nice. Wait, I'm just going to. You know, I'm leaving. So, well, well, let's fucking get there. You know what I mean? So, let's go to Hogwarts. So, we're on the train. It's moving. And guess who we meet? Stabbers! 1-1! one kins Oh, so, I, okay, I, I love this introduction because he rolls in deeply unimpressed, right? He's like, oh, you're Harry Potter? That's cool. And he has black stuff on his nose before he gets on the train. His mom wipes it off. His nose is red from it. And then when he pops back up, he has black stuff on his nose again. <laughs> it's boom. <laughs> it's I don't know. I mean, little boys are just like that. They're just gross. Yeah, but I I think it's it just she does a great job shaping our characters and shaping the personality of the characters via their actions and descriptions. And the one thing that's very unique about this and in the interaction between Ron and Harry, this is the first time Harry really actually engages with somebody. Uh, whereas prior to this, he's always asking questions or people are like, oh my God, you're Harry Potter. And for the first time, he's point. like, he's like, dude, I don't know shit. I don't even remember this whole famous incident happened. And I think that's the beauty of their relationship. And I think we've all kind of, kind of hinted at it. 
that it's a natural relationship and it's a relationship based upon just two dudes, two bros. <laughs> two bros. Chilling in a hot tub. <laughs> Chilling in a Hogwarts Express compartment five feet apart because they're not gay. <laughs> Lonely on the nest. It's a vine. Same diff. One of my favorite parts about the way that they meet is how it really shows that Harry's not actually at a disadvantage not knowing magic, and it kind of levels the playing field because Ron does genuinely seem just as interested in what Harry doesn't know as Harry is interested in what he knows. And at least one of my favorite lines from the whole damn book, which is, are all your family wizards? Or, yes, I think so. I think mom's got a second cousin who's an accountant, but we never talk about him. It's just such a... I I can see an 11-year-old kid being like, she got this, but I... So my theory for that Weasley, like, second cousin who is an accountant is that it's not a squib. It's not a not, it's not a non-magical person. It's an actual wizard who, once he graduated Hogwarts, he's like, fuck this shit. I'm going to go be an accountant. (laughs) And that's why they don't talk about him, because he left the wizarding world to go be an accountant. To go learn math. (laughs) Dishonor. Dishonor on you! Dishonor on your cow! How dare you be an accountant! <laughs> um, this is the second wizard that Harry's actually having a real conversation with. And I just love that he's so concerned about the fact that he doesn't know anything. He's so concerned about the fact that he comes from a muggle family. And Ron, compared with Malfoy, who's the only other person he's ever talked to, says there's loads of people who come from mag- muggle families and they learn quick enough. So the one like thing that Harry's really starting to worry about because it's been reinforced for him is that he may be really bad at this. He doesn't know what's going on and he might be thought of as less than. And the second wizard he ever talks to is like, Anna, it's fine. You'll be like, fine. Yeah. You'll be a hundred percent fine because there are many people like you. And it's the first time Harry's being thought of as an integrated person into the wizarding world. And it's completely dismissive of everything he's heard up to that point. You also gotta remember that, like, Ron doesn't know any fucking magic either because he truly believes that the Sunshine Daisies butter yellow thing is, like, a, an actual goddamn spell. And after hearing three three fucking spells, like, we all, we all know this is not a fucking spell. He obviously, I, I think, truly has just been not paying attention the same way you don't pay attention to how your mom drives the car and suddenly you're 15 and a half and you're like, oh my God, this thing is crazy. So he, I think he's also realizing that he knows nothing the same way as when I was 15 and a half. I was like, how the do I get to school from my house? I don't know. So I think that they're all in the same boat and Ron's kind of just like enjoying the little bit of um, higher ground he has for a split second. Like, you're going to be fine. There's lots of other people who don't know what's going on. I'm one of them. <laughs> I absolutely love, like, the moment where Harry voices that concern because, like, it's, like, they're already kind of getting along, but, like, I think this is the moment that kind of seals their friendship because, like, Harry's never had anyone to confide in before. He had Hagrid for, like, ten minutes, and now, like, he's talking to Ron, and he's, like, like, he's talking, it's the conversation where he says uh, Voldemort's name and Ron freaks out, and he's, like, like, I just never knew you shouldn't. Like, you see what I mean? I've never, I've got loads to learn. I bet he added voicing for the first time something that had been worrying him a lot lately. Like, this is the first we're hearing of it, like, in this in this chapter. Like, but he's had a whole month to ruminate on this. I bet I'm the worst in the class. Oh. And, like, and that moment just, like, solidifies their friendship so much for me. And I just love it so much. 
I, I really relate. I really relate to Harry on that because like I grew up in a military family and we traveled a lot. And uh, it always felt weird when you showed up to school and people knew each other from the previous year and you felt like you were missing something. And even like I remember one year I showed up for the first day of school like 10 minutes late and it already seemed like everybody somehow had some in. And even though I think it was like second or third grade, I just felt like I was automatically a step behind and like lost with it. And I really, really can relate, as, especially when I was a kid, to that. And I think there's something really, really cool about how Ron and Harry go on this journey together and how they both grow and learn together and how we see them not as Ron being a mentor or being like, I'll show you the world, but being like, I am your equal. One of my favorite parts about the friendship between Ron and Harry is <laughs> Ron, later on this gets a little twisted when he starts really liking Hermione, but... Ron is kind of the opposite of Harry in that Harry is so introverted and so keeps everything to himself until he explodes, whereas Ron just spills it all out. So now we move on to our our, our next great introduction. Pretty epic. Brooke, I'd love to get your opinion on the candy. <laughs> the right. candy! Candy I, from the trolley! Uh, love a candy, um, except that all of these sound like very European candies and that a lot of them don't actually sound that appetizing. Bernie Bot's Every Flavor Beans is every flavor, which is used almost as much as a practical joke as it is a delicious thing. Uh, Drupal's Best Blowing Gum, which I don't understand what makes wizard chewing gum better than standard chewing gum. I think it's mentioned in a later book that the bubbles you blow with it like float around the room for at least an hour. Yeah, that sounds right. But then it's not in your mouth. It's magic. I, they're all about the... It's wizards. They're all about the aesthetic, man. I like a... I like a solid chew. Um, <laughs> Big leaf. We got chocolate frogs, which are the only things that sound appetizing. Honestly, pumpkin pasties, which are a... Put, put them on your boobs. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking, too. Mmm, pumpkins for Halloween. <laughs> which also is, to keep in context, something that's probably really wild... For the UK, in the US, we're very used to eating sweet things that are pumpkin flavored. Everywhere else in the world, pumpkin is a savory dish. So that is probably wilder in a UK <laughs> context than it is to us. We're like, okay, yeah, pumpkin spice cakes, got you. Cauldron cakes, which are like a Twinkie? My theory is that cauldron cakes are like the chocolate hostess cupcakes. Oh, yeah. Um, are those called hobos? No, 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 not that. I'm thinking the one with the little squid. It has yeah. 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 the ho ho. The ho ho is just like Swiss rolls. Yeah, I just don't know. Look, I was a very chubby child. I know my. <laughs> I know my. She knows her hostess good. cakes. <laughs> and then we round out with licorice wands, which just sounds like a worse flavored Twizzler. And how do you make it look? How do you make licorice look it's more just, like a wand? It's just, here's the plot twist. It's just a piece of licorice. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just a licorice-flavored Twizzler. Grace is not the only Ravenclaw that did homework today. Uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, I was 99% sure there was some sort of conversion rate set up by those books, and a quick Google proved that to be correct. Someone has broken it down online in the Harry Potter wiki to the exact, the, the exact breakdown of everything. So... The way it works out is that one galleon, and this is in 2010 money, so there's a little bit of inflation, but I didn't I didn't do the math. Don't worry, Christine, I didn't do the math. One galleon is equivalent to about $6.64 US. One sickle is about 39 cents, and one nut is about one penny. That's so, ridiculous. Or, wait, do you mean 
Canut. No, I mean nut. <laughs> as is pronounced in the audiobooks. Ew! They Did pronounce you pass it Canut. No. How fucking dare you bring that to my table? My mother also called them Canuts. Either way, if you look at the total, uh, Harry paid 11 silver sickles and 7 bronze nuts for this cache of candy. What's the total? $4.36. Oh my god, that's like the olden, like, like, dime store days. Like I said, the Wizarding World is stuck in 1897. (laughs) Because this is like a treasure trove of candy that looks amazingly large, and yet it ends up being less than five bucks. Overall, I think that's how you end up in a scenario, though, where they've they've got this massive hoard and they're bartering for sandwiches. Based on this conversion, the sandwiches probably cost more. Well, they're homemade. And they're, but, but the there's lo- four of them. The love makes it. Holy <laughs> <laughs> love has no price. <laughs> I also think it's important to point out because it's a it's a discrepancy from like what I think we remember from the movies and the book. The chocolate frogs are not frogs. And in the movie, the chocolate frog, he opens it up and it jumps out and hops away and jumps out the window. <laughs> in this, it's literally just like a little like chocolate frog. So I think that's an important note to make because uh, like ever since I saw Sorcerer's Stone as a child, I imagine what it would be like. Like, do you have to sit there and wait for the chocolate frog to not be a sentient creature anymore? No, you gotta eat alive. Or do you have to bite into this as it's still alive? Slimy, yet satisfying. So I'm glad to to read this and realize that they do not move and they are not alive in the original text. So inside the frogs are the wizard and collectible cards. And this is when we get our exposition dump of who the fuck is Dumbledore, who has been briefly mentioned to date and has a long list of titles. But this is the first time we get a summary for the reader as much as it is for Harry of what Dumbledore is, who he is. Albus Dumbledore, currently headmaster of Hogwarts. Considered by many the greatest wizard of modern times, Dumbledore is particularly famous for his defeat of the dark wizard Grindelwald in 1945, for the discovery of the 12 uses of dragon's blood, and his work on alchemy with his partner, partner, Nicholas Flamel, Professor Dumbledore enjoys chamber music and ten-pin bowling. Okay, so, wait, okay, were you saying partner? Because, like, J.K. Rowling says Dumbledore is gay. Yeah, I feel like there's a good chance that he and Nicholas Flamel were like, this sex is so good, we should create a potion that we just do this for a <laughs> Wait, but don't be talking about his wife later. I, I guess that doesn't mean everything. Oh, sorry, does bisexuality not exist, <laughs> Tina? It's an open relationship at 400 years old. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. I don't know what I'm saying. Maybe I'll just cut the whole damn thing out. What do you got? I, it's just funny because in this modern day context, I know partner meant like colleague, but in this modern day context, I 100% my first instinct was, oh yeah, his partner, his romantic partner, Nicholas Flamel. And to me, this makes sense because in the Fantastic Beast movie, Nicholas Flamel, when we meet him, is like <laughs> such an old kooky fart. And to me, that makes so much sense that he and Dumbledore would end up together, like, later on in the post-Grindelwald years. But, like, I know that's not, I know that's not actually what happens, and I know he has a wife. But I just think it's, it's just a fun imagining of Dumbledore and Nicholas Fulwell. I think, I think a lot of things could be read into a lot of this language. My first instinct was lab partner, but that's fine. Like, you can be many things, you know? 
It's because I went to, I was at a liberal arts college where all of my, and I was a comm major, where all of my professors refer to their significant others as partners. Same. Actually, same. Totally. And I'm like, are we all lesbians? No. We're just political. No, I was shocked when I found out one of my professors was married to a man. And I was like, but you keep saying partner. Are you not a lesbian? Um, Everyone has something to say. Is this all about, is Dumbledore gay with Nicholas Flamel? No, I have a question about the timing. Because if Nicholas Flamel and Dumbledore work on alchemy, you know, we know later with the stone um, that makes Nicholas Flamel live forever... Um, together, how the timing does it work for me? This is the one plot hole that I've found with J.K. Rowling. The only one. Well, <laughs> there's no way. The biggest timing one that I've found. There's other stuff to alchemy besides creating the uh, philosopher's stone, though. Like, like Flamel obviously like did that on his own. Like he must have like hun- like although like hundreds of years before. Yeah, although it's kind of canonically like implied that wizards live a little longer than muggles. Like Dumbledore's like a hundred and twenty something. But like I think Flamel developed the stone on his own and like just worked with Dumbledore on other alchemical shit. Yes, mate. Uh, so I think everyone's really wrong on this one because I think I, think, <laughs> I love when you start that way. I think they they were not uh, they were not trying to develop. Uh, the serum for like eternal life. I think they were just two bros chilling in a hot tub, chilling around the hot tub, fucking around with chemistry. And they were like, dude, roids, but like magical roids. And they were like, bro, let's get some sick fucking games. And I think that's where it happened. And then as a byproduct of those sick ass games, they just kind of live forever. And I really think, you know, that's the whole moral of this whole chapter. It's just bros throwing out on a train doing roids. Like, but, it's a really magical bro chapter. You know what I mean, Andrew? Bro, I got bro. you got that? Dude, bro, kings don't know right now. Hey, sometimes you get a good pump in, you feel like you're going to live forever, and then you want to find a way to live forever. Dude, yeah, and you're just like, yo, bro, let's keep these gains train going. <laughs> Great job. Tap out, tap out. <laughs> um, so moving right ahead. Uh, so Ron pulls his wand out, and he says he's basically got a hand-me-down wand. And unicorn hair is poking out. How do wands do? Like, <laughs> do you have one for most of your life? If it gets fucked, do you get a same wand? Do you get a different one? So my follow-up question to this is that it mentions that this is Charlie's old wand. So what happened with Charlie that warranted him getting a new wand? Like, did he go through some... Like, Wait, no, I've realized that. So there's a theory that Charlie is gay, and that's why we never find him, like, with a girl, or he never gets married, or never really mentions his love life. Because as we know, if you're straight, you have to find love. Yeah, exactly. And all it mentions is that, like, he's like, nah, I'm just, like, off doing, like, cool stuff with dragons. And that's, like, the wizard euphemism for I'm gay, and I don't want to settle down. So maybe he realized he was gay and his new wand didn't fit him anymore and he needed an, and he or his old wand didn't fit him anymore. Or he just had some sick gains and he needed a heavier <laughs> wand no. because it's a game no. train. No. But so anyway, my point being is that, all jokes aside, something happened with Charlie where he needed a new wand and then he got that wand that like, the wand chooses the wizard, Mr. Potter. 
I think what happened with Charlie is he started making enough money to purchase a better wand after he left his family. And we totally skipped Neville, which I would like to go back and meet Neville real fast. We don't get a great introduction to him right now, but we do meet him and he ends up being incredibly important later. So let's just like take him six look. books from now. Yeah, incredibly important. He like could have been Harry. You know what I mean? That's crazy. So like just him and his toad. I just want to acknowledge that he's there. He's on my list of chronology. Is that right? Chronology? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Thank God. Also, not six books later, without Neville, they would not have won the House Cup. This uh, <laughs> also true. <laughs> with Great with the most bullshit reason, but we'll get there. Okay. Oh, I meant to start doing house points this year because we're finally going to Hogwarts. I have a notebook for it and everything. <laughs> like how you said this year? This episode. Wait. I don't know units of measurement, <laughs> um, but I, I do fully intend to in, enact that when we get to Hogwarts in our next chapter. I, I think I think it's actually only appropriate, though, to just do it half-assed because there is no point system and you should just, you know, randomly give it out because, let's be honest, that's what the fuck happens. The games <laughs> it are made does up. stop mattering after book four. The games <laughs> are made up and the points don't matter. Oh. I love the show. So let's move on to Hermione because we really need to wrap this up, gang. Um, let's move on to Hermione, who, um, so from my personal perspective, when I was eight years old reading this, I was like, what a bitch. But as a 28 year old looking back, I was like, wow, I was exactly fucking Hermione. Yes. Um, the most obnoxious, uh, <laughs> just full of herself piece of shit. <laughs> as a point of context, she was. I'm imagining probably pretty good at muggle school, but she probably got this letter and literally for the rest of her summer, her parents were just like, oh, our little witch. Oh, you're going to be a big witch. Like, she probably has been made to feel very special for the fact that she's going. Also, she's an only child, so she's been made to feel that way her entire life. Hey, fuck you. Not true at all. I was made to feel inferior. All only children are fucking weird. <laughs> I'm marrying that much one. Is true. I'm marrying one. He's fucking weird. <laughs> um, so who has thoughts about Hermione? So as a stepmom, myself, um, of someone who's definitely not going to listen to this so I can talk about her. Um, she is 11 and she is, this chapter reminds me so much of her because she has, she's incredibly caring, very thoughtful, um, very observant and she also will tell people what to do before they get the chance to even decide for themselves to do it um which can definitely be a problem especially with her brother um and her older brother (laughs) her older brother yes um and at school and so in living with her i'm like man you know gotta figure out a way as a parent to like figure out how to teach her not to do those things um that she can still be smart and uh uh, assertive without doing those things. But then I read this chapter and I'm like, nah, she can do whatever she wants, actually. She's going to be great. It's Nothing like, to worry about. It took me until I was like maybe like 25 years old to figure out how to be that kind of person without being fucking obnoxious about it. So like she's got time, she's going to figure it out. I feel like out. that's incredibly hard for girls slash women as they grow into it to figure out that balance, but also to like, fuck the balance. But also I've talked about this before, like my journey from like a, being a Ravenclaw in high school to being like a Hufflepuff now, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like you, you, you mellow out. You, you got to. But, like, imagine how just excited Hermione must be. Out like, of her mind. Like, I mean, it's like if we got our letter. Like, like I am. I just imagine Hermione, bef- like, pre-Hogwarts as, like, the kid who gets made fun of at school. Because she is an only child. She is kind of fucking weird. And, like, 
like imagine going to it. fucking uh, shut up. <laughs> imagine going to fucking Hogwarts and like you get to do like magic homework for your magic classes with your magic friends at your magic school. Like, of course she re- memorized all of her school books and everyone else is like nerd. But I I get it. I get it. So I've been saying a lot of unpopular opinions tonight, but... Uh, <laughs> As you always do. I'll just stack this one on top of it. Uh, I think, especially in the first three books, J.K. Rowling is very unkind to her female characters. And I think definitely with uh, the introduction of Hermione, she uses a lot of words uh, that really kind of make her a know-it-all. Like, she uses, I think she used the word bossy. She like She's like, she had a bossy voice. And that's... She would not use that if it was a man. She would use something like stern, strong... Or maybe not strong, but I feel like her vocabulary would greatly differ. I think the word stern is like... Yeah, and I think, I really think, like, we are exposed to Hermione. We see, we're getting that she's a three-dimensional character. But at the same time, yeah, she definitely comes across as this know-it-all. And I don't think, and especially in this book, there's any male character that equals that. And uh, like I said, I just, I really feel, and it'll be interesting to read more. Uh, going forward now that I'm a lot older but I think it is she's just really cruel especially in the first three books to women well don't forget uh, Haley she is still made fun of when she goes to Hogwarts you know until and even once she makes friends after Halloween with Harry and Ron it's very frequently mentioned throughout the whole series that she is the nerd the nerd that's not in Ravenclaw you know, uh, people are constantly marking for that. But let's not also forget that Harry actually skimmed his books earlier, it says, before he went there. I mean, he got the name Hedwig from it, and multiple times it said that he went through them. So whereas in the movies they make this big point of like, I've read all my books, Harry read at least some portion of his books too before he went on the train. I think that it's this is deliberate choice. Like, in response to both of your points, I think this is a fully deliberate choice because... <clears throat> First of all, this this introduction is being seen through Harry's eyes. So Harry is a little boy who is meeting a little girl and thinking like, "What the fuck?" Like, because she does like she does come on very very strong like right out of the gate because she thinks like, "Oh, this time it'll be different." Like she was the nerdy kid at her other school, and now she's coming to this school, and she's like, "Oh, now I've found my people." And she quickly, like in very short order, she finds that that is not necessarily the case. No one else has memorized their books; they've scanned them. They haven't memorized them, and th- and then she ends up having no friends, which is how the whole troll incident goes down. So I think that this is a fully deliberate choice to bring us to that point where Harry and Ron befriend Hermione, and Hermione finally like has that that outside influence that mellows her out and like lets her break the rules and like use her powers for chaos. Yeah. I think, um, I think that you mentioned a really good point and only children don't get that social monetary. When, when I was a fucking bitch and I was a kid, my two little brothers were like, mommy, Tina's being a bitch. And my, I would get in trouble. Right. They like, I would do something cunty and they wouldn't listen to me. And I'd be like, wow, that was an ineffective method. Right. And so I think that she absolutely, I mean, she's been in regular school, but you're right that like she, she, I mean, you, you need that social monitoring, right? And if you don't have a shit ton of siblings, you need it from your peers. And also I think we can all relate, especially the extroverts in the group of which there's like three really strong extroverts in this group. Um, like we can really relate, um, to being in a new group and, having a hard time finding your authentic personality, right? And being being like, I have to be this way, I have to present a certain kind of way, and realizing that you're being annoying, but you can't stop it. Like, I, I feel this way all the time. I don't know if you guys can tell, 
listeners, like I'm, I'm really gregarious <laughs> and you hear, no. you hear it happening and you like, can't stop it. Right. Like you, you can't keep it inside. And so I think she's experiencing the most exciting day of her entire life. She's desperate for friendship and she thinks other people, she has no frame of reference for what other people know. So she's coming on so strong, trying to be like, I know everything you do. I've read all the textbooks. I've memorized them. This is my personality. She, it really takes several months until Halloween for her to, to figure out what do other people know? How do I blend into this society and get that social balancing that she really needs? And I think I agree with Haley that it's a deliberate choice that J.K. Rowling made because it doesn't, the importance is not just Hermione's growth, but also the boy's growth in relation to her. And they never, they never suppress her in the first book when they try to, when they make fun of her, when they don't want to be her friend, it turns out bad. Um, and they, they don't end up changing her. And I feel like a lot of stories with women who are outgoing, especially as children, young girls, when they grow up, they learn because the world sort of pushes down on them. Even if the, the movie or book is trying to paint it in a positive way, they still learn from the outside world to be calm and To be quieter. smaller. Right, to be smaller, exactly. And Hermione doesn't learn that. She doesn't. Throughout the book, she still raises her hand for everything, and she has the right answer. And what's, it's when she has, when she's allowed to voice her opinion as strongly as she wants to, that like lives are saved. And I, I think J.K. did that on purpose. And the the boys, generally, the men in the book who do well and grow well are the ones who learn to let her be herself. Somebody's got to steer this ship. So this scene is like it's the infamous first meeting of the golden trio obviously we know based on what happens later that like this is it this is our like wonderful group that we're gonna follow and love the games to come i think the most neville thing to ever happen is that neville is also there for the meeting of the golden trio and just like standing there like, awkwardly everyone has forgotten about it to the point well, I was reading this chapter and I was like oh my god Neville has been standing there the whole time that they are meeting and Hermione's doing her you're Harry Potter I've read all about you you're in these books and that sounded really Australian but that's alright it's cool um, going to Australia but yeah it was fine um, and it's just like the most Neville thing to ever happen that he was there for this like iconic meeting of the trio and then was promptly forgotten about. Um, moving us right along to kind of our last real introduction of this chapter, we re-meet Malfoy as Malfoy. Fucking Malfoy! And also Crabbe and Goyle in a one-off in which they <laughs> do almost nothing. Um, they stand there um, scary, yeah, yeah, like, as they do for the they entire rest of the series. Scabbers. Yeah, they try to scrap on the train. But also, yeah. we were talking last podcast about the fact that Draco is perhaps a product of his upbringing. And the thing that really drove that home for me was the fact that after Harry kind of rebukes him. Rebuts? I think it's rebukes. It's rebukes. A strong rebuke. (laughs) After Harry rebukes him, the first thing he says is, I'd be careful if I were you, Potter, he said slowly. Unless you're a bit politer, you'll go the same way as your parents. They didn't know it was good for them either. You hang around with riffraff like the Weasleys and that Hagrid and it'll rub off on you. So he's clearly grown up in an environment where his Death Eater AF parents have been like, oh, the Potters, they got what was coming to them. And Harry will too. 
I also think that he's trying to compensate for not being able to recognize Harry originally in, in Diagonally. I think he's like now coming back. He's like, yeah, I know all about you. I know what happened to your parents. And like, yeah, like I know more about your life than you do. And you're going to get the same bullshit because you have no context and you should be a Death Eater. And fuck you, my name's Draco Malfoy. Don't laugh at it. Do y'all think that there's any chance that Draco does actually know more about the Order of the Phoenix and the Death Eat? I mean, obviously he knows more about the Voldemort side, but I don't know if he necessarily knows that Hagrid and the Weasleys and Dumbledore and McGonagall and all of these people were all parts of this secret society. Because it's weird that he would specify people that all were members of the order. Now they do all happen to be people that Harry does know and he's seen them with them. But I, I'm just wondering, do you think that there's any chance that his parents were like, and these were the motherfuckers that fought against us? Uh, I don't think so because while all this was happening, Draco was still a child and it's not until he's much older that they really bring him on board to like the Death Eater Voldemort side so I think he has like some inclination that his parents were on the wrong side and that these that there were some other people who were fighting against them. But I don't think he knows the I don't think he knows the whole story because he's just a kid and I don't think his parents would have explained that to him. I think he just has heard his dad talking about the Weasleys because the Weasleys have 10 billion children. And they're poor. And oh yeah, they're yeah. gingers. I, I get that. The only reason I say that is it's a known thing that in both like white supremacist or extremist or any fundamentalist household, there's things that you say softly inside the house and there's things that you don't say outside the house. And a lot of times they are way more open with children and in indoctrinating them saying like, these are the bad people. These are the evil people. We don't talk about this, but the we're, you know, we're doing the good fight. We're the ones who are trying to bring about the right thing, getting the magical race above the, you know, the, the non-magical people, but we can't talk about it. And that's why I'm wondering if the reason that Draco is so sure of himself is not just the privilege, not just the wealth, but also this knowledge that his parents were, you know, in his mind, fighting the good fight to try and bring about this, supremacy of the magical race and someone like Hagrid and people like the Weasleys, you know, as was referenced earlier, that entire family was fighting in, against Voldemort. And that's the only reason I think there's some possible merit to this idea that Draco knows a lot more at this point than anyone else probably in Hogwarts as a student as far as what the actual history of what's happened is. They're 11. Yeah, they're 11. And also in later books, Draco's family, especially his mother, doesn't want him getting involved in anything. Like there, there is an inherent desire and real world and even in the books, like there's an inherent desire that you don't bring your kids into this shit. Like nobody's nobody's ever unless you're a psychopath. No one's ever like, come on, Billy, like. So that, but that is a good juxtaposition to show why he is a bad guy and how, and how maybe his wife is not and mm-hmm. how like the death eaters might not all be necessarily truly evil, but there are some that are. So I really think that he is just an innocent child. And especially in the last book, like we see he's kind of, he's just a coward wrapped up in it. And then his sidekicks are actually really the bad guys. I think there's definitely something to be said for like um, the age range because like even even like us like 
barring what you would or would not tell an 11-year-old, there's also, like, what would an 11-year-old understand mm-hmm. and what would they yeah. not understand. I think that uh, Lucius Malfoy knows better than almost anyone else uh, that his son cannot keep his fucking mouth shut. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, I think that uh, Draco, as much of a sniveling little asshole as he is, is very intelligent and observant. So I think Draco's caught on to a lot of stuff, but his parents have not expressly told him. I don't think they start doing that until book two, when you start kind of getting a little more of Draco's home life. And even then, he's still just getting inferences. Like, they're not telling him straight up, like, hey, we're going to be doing this. This is the plan. This is how it's going to go down. They're just telling, Yeah, they're just <laughs> telling their 12-year-old son, like, some things are going to be happening this year. We're involved. Just keep your head down and don't say anything <laughs> for once in your fucking life. <laughs> um, one very important introduction that we haven't uh, dwelled on much is Scabbers. Knowing what we know about Scabbers, the fact that he leaps up to bite Goyle has such a nice duality to it. Because this is not a rat defending his owner, which I guess would be a thing. This is a human man taking a bite <laughs> out of a finger of an 11 year old child uh, because he's a little bit pissed at his parents. I think it's like, you woke me up from my nap. <laughs> Fuck you. All the time. I'm going back to sleep. The Goyles were also Death Eaters, though. And Pettigrew's in this situation because of Death Eatery nonsense. I'm sure that's true, but I, I really just think it's because he got woken up from his nap. He's almost like full rat right now. One thing that I hadn't picked up until this rereading is that, or at least had not acknowledged in my own head, is that uh, Scabbers was Percy's rat before he was Ron's, which means that obviously Peter Pettigrew has been living this life as a rat for many years. But not only that, he was Percy, so he was going to Hogwarts for years at this point. So is he just like going back to his old stomping grounds thing like, oh, that's where I chilled with the guy that I betrayed and directly led to his death. And that's where I hung out with the girl who I also betrayed and led directly to his death. It, it just, it's very interesting to me that he would have been going back all these years and never have been found. I would just like to mention that a rat is not on the list of accepted pets. Yeah! <laughs> so, hey. how did he even get in here? It's a toad, an owl, or a what? Cat. Cat. Who the fuck do you think you are, Ronald Weasley? It's like, it's like nobody even cares that there's Who a cares? rat. It's the Weasleys. Yeah, not, the Weasleys. Not just a rat, but like just an oh, uncaged like, rat <laughs> running around the door. I just want to add, my allergies would be rampant at Hogwarts. Yeah. Are you kidding me? I would be like, um, Professor McGonagall, I cannot stay in the same room where there are five other cats. And she'd be like, suck it up, bitch. You're going to need to visit Madame Pomfrey for that. Um, also, I know a friend who used to live on a houseboat, and she would routinely lose her rat on the boat. So I don't know what you're going to do in a castle. <laughs> what you're going to do with all the rats? All oh, that rat's up on that boat. So the last thing that happens in this chapter is um, we've talked before about how wizards have a flair for the dramatic. Let's put the first years in the boats. Why? Drama? Drama. It takes more time. We get to see Hagger, we get in the boat, we, we find finally, Trevor. We finally find Trevor. Yeah, we get, we go into the tunnel, there's some ivy, and we see the castle, and then he knocks. I try not to talk about the movies, like, too much. Like, I love them, but, like, the books are their own thing. But I think one thing that the films did perfectly was the first sight of Hogwarts, 
when like they're rowing across the lake and they see it like on the cliff over the lake with like the lights against the stars in the sky. It's just it feels like coming home. I really just absolutely love that moment. I always reread that scene like three times every time I reread the books. Wow. I think that's a really great police on this episode. We end it with the old knock, knock, knock on the door. And you know who we meet next? Fucking Minerva McGonagall. You ready? Right also a sentient hat. And a sentient <laughs> hat. So, I'm stoked for the next chapter, the sorting hat. Um, yeah, we're really at Hogwarts, and I swear to God, we're going to start doing house points next week. So get ready for that. Let's go around the circle, do some plugs. Uh, Grace, what you up to these days? Christina, thank you so much for asking me that question. I have watched exactly one episode of The Magicians. Oh, that's a fun show. I'm intrigued. I have been reading uh, The Lost Art of Reading Nature's Signs by Tristan Gooley. Um, if you've ever read Lord of the Rings and like just want to be Aragorn in every aspect of your life, like this is how you do it. Uh, it's just like it's orienteering and pathfinding like just in nature, like judging by the way this tree has grown and the orientation of the top leaves, I can guess that that direction is south. Like it's shit like that. It's really, really fucking fascinating. Speaking of Lord of the Rings, you can listen to my podcast, as always. That's what I'm talking about every Tuesday, wherever you get podcasts. Um, Similarly related, I started and finished watching The Witcher, and it is very good. I currently cannot watch the Lord of the Rings movies for at least another couple months until I finish the books. And I have this innate desire to watch the movies and watching The Witcher kind of helped quench that desire because it has a lot of the same fantasy elements. It's definitely very gory. It's definitely very sexual. You see a lot of boobs, a lot of boobs and a lot of decapitated heads, sometimes in the same scene. Um, <laughs> and I would I would recommend it tremendously. I'm still reading The Golden House by Salman Rushdie. And it's still baller. I had mentioned in my original plug that I would let you know how I was feeling as I progressed, and this is still living on that front. Uh, I just want to say I'm proud of all of y'all. We went this entire episode without talking about uh, Lord of the Rings and Tolkien. Uh, so, well, that was a plug, so that doesn't count. You're the one who keeps bringing up Lord of the I'm Rings. Not the one You're the up. reason we started talking about it last not episode. At not at all. Not at all. Uh, Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, and then another thing I really want to plug is for any of my uh, COVID-19 patients who are self-quarantined out there right now, um, grab yourself a good book, and I highly recommend The Road from Cormac McCarthy. He's probably one of the greatest living American writers right now, and I think it is super apropos. And if it is all worth it, it is for that final page, which is some of the most beautiful prose that have probably been written in the last 30 years in American literature. Isn't that the name of the douchebag in Half-Blood Prince? Cormac McClagan. <laughs> Good pull, though. That was close. One of the greatest wizarding writers of the last year. God help us. Tried to score with Hermione Granger. Did not succeed. He named drop his own uncle. Anyways, um, I'm going to go ahead and plug the show that I've been rewatching, which is Parks and Rec. I yes. went through the first, literally every season except the last season, in about six days. I started watching it as soon as I got home last week, and... From this very podcast recording, well, last week's podcast recording, but I've been uh, binging that to an extent that is probably not healthy and is fairly detrimental to my sleep schedule, but it's totally worth it. So I've been watching Russian Doll, which is has really messed me up. Um, after the first episode, I did not want to finish it because it wrecked me. 
but then I kept going and it's been really, really good. Uh, I'm going to plug a podcast that's been out for a couple years, but I'm, I just discovered it and I'm catching up on it. It's, uh, ologies with Allie Ward, like, you know, like biology and like fucking archeology, span like those kinds of ologies. And it's just like one adorable nerdy girl trying to get some knowledge. She interviews ologists. Um, her most recent interviewee was a scatologist. You don't have to start with that one. You can start with a different one. Um, but she's a delight and I could not recommend her anymore. So, um, Anyone else got anything else to say? Are we ready to meet McGonagall? We're ready to meet some teachers. We're ready, ready to meet some friends. We're going to get sorted. We're going to go to Hogwarts. Fuck yeah. Speaking of houses, get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> Great job, everyone. The Restricted Section was created and hosted by me, Christina Kahn, based on the book series by J.K. Rowling. All music by Ryan Kahn. Logo by Michael Hardison. Technical support from Sean Watson. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at restrictedsectionpod or shoot us an email at restrictedsectionpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, feelings, complaints, conspiracy theories, or lavish praise. Fuck yeah, I love bread and I'm gonna fucking cook <laughs> some of that shit.